Well, I'm happy to be here on this Sunday with all of you. Welcome. Uh, and I'm glad that we get to spend a few minutes listening to Jesus together. This summer we've been going through this Sermon on the Mount, um, which is the most famous sermon in the history of the world. And uh, as we've been listening along in the Sermon on the Mount, we're, li- we're learning what it means to be disciples of Jesus and what it means to make disciples of Jesus, what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to teach others to follow Jesus. And in today's passage in the Sermon on the Mount, which my daughter read a minute ago, um, in today's passage in the Sermon on the Mount, for the first time in this sermon... We read a word which is of paramount importance for the Sermon on the Mount, a word which is of paramount importance for Jesus, and a word that is of paramount importance for us if we want to follow Jesus and to teach others to follow Jesus as well. That word is love. The Sermon on the Mount has already described aspects of heavenly love very clearly. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers and so on. And throughout the kind of second half of Matthew chapter 5, we've heard Jesus call for a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that righteousness includes standing guard against anger and hate. Surely this is related to the topic of love. It, it includes standing guard against sexual immorality and lust. It's a righteousness that calls for radical truthfulness. A righteousness that calls us not to retaliate when people... When we face people who do real wrong, but rather to turn the other cheek, to pay more than is demanded, to go the extra mile, and to give to everybody who asks. These are the things that we've been reading about or listening to or learning about so far in the Sermon on the Mount. And here's the thing. What is all of that describing if it's not describing a life of radical love? In a way, what Jesus has been inviting us into as he has challenged us to live as people who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, is he has been inviting us over and over into a life of Love. And now finally in verse 43, that great word love finally reaches our ears in the words, you shall love your neighbor. But as important as love is for Jesus and as important as love is to us and as important as the idea of love is to all of our neighbors around us in every part of the world. This idea of love can be easily misunderstood. And so Jesus, as he begins speaking about love, does not simply rest content to say, love, period. That's it. Why? Because we all hear a direction to love with other descriptions of what love really is, other descriptions of that in the backgrounds. 
other ways that people have described love, other things we've experienced from people who said that they loved us. We all have different experiences and ideas associated with that idea of love. And so when Jesus begins talking directly about love, he begins in verse 43 by saying, you've heard it said. He knows that those listening to him there that day on the hillside as they listened to the Sermon on the Mount had heard about love before. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now there are two parts to that, right? The first part is you should love your neighbor. Now let's do a little quiz. I know we've got grade school kids in here who normally would be in classes. So grade school kids, let me do a little quiz for you. Uh, Let's just do by raise of hands. Do you think that that command, you shall love your neighbor, is that a good command? Yes? Okay, I'm seeing some hands. Good. That's right, it is a good command. In fact, it's a command that's found in the Scriptures. You should love your neighbor. Now, how about that second part? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I don't want to accidentally embarrass people, whether age 2 or 42. Um, but, But how about that part that says, and you should hate your enemy? Is that a good direction? No. In fact, it's not a direction that's found in Scripture. It's a direction that has grown up like a cancerous tumor on top of the biblical commands to love your neighbor. And you can kind of imagine how that idea would grow up like a cancerous tumor on top of the command to love your neighbor. If God's Word says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, what do we immediately start doing? We immediately start looking for loopholes, right? And we say, all right, the Bible says I should love my neighbor, but I bet there's a loophole in there somewhere. And that loophole must allow me to say, sure, I should love my neighbors and I should love the people who live near me. And I should love the people who kind of live in the same culture that I live in. And I should love the people who like the things that I like. And I should love the people who like me. And I should love the people who are like me, but enemies, but people who are from other cultures, People who are different, people who are weird, people who are difficult. Surely the Bible has loopholes about them, right? And so over time, even though God has given his people this good command, you shall love your neighbor, God's people over time in between the days of Moses and the days of Jesus had added to what God directed. You shall love your neighbor And yet it's still okay to hate your enemies, they taught. Now we need to pause for a moment and ask the question, what is an enemy? An enemy may be somebody that has hurt you in some real ways. An enemy may also be somebody for whom you have simply developed a distaste over time. Maybe realizing it, maybe deciding it, maybe not even recognizing it. Maybe even feeling like it's a little bit beyond your control. 
Sometimes also people that we identify as enemies are not even people who have done anything to us or people that we have kind of individually or personally decided to label as enemies. They're simply people that our whole culture around us tells us should be viewed as our enemies. So, for example, in Jesus's day, there was this well-known situation that Jewish people and Samaritan people who, relatively speaking, were neighbors, who, relatively speaking, had a lot of overlapping values and, relatively speaking, had a lot of overlapping cultural uh, norms and ideas. And yet, Jewish people and Samaritan people had decided, over time, we disdain each other. And so if you grew up in the villages that Jesus grew up in, it would have been commonly assumed that if you're one of us, then you must hate them. If you're one of us, then like the rest of us, you've got to despise those people. And so sometimes without even realizing it, without even ever kind of explicitly deciding that we're going to hate people, even though some of those people have absolutely never done anything wrong to you or me, we simply absorb this cultural idea that those people, that they are our enemies. This can happen very easily in our world, right? In so many different ways. Just like in Jesus' day, there are still kind of ethnic ways that we can create divisions and kind of talk us against them. Maybe without even realizing it, drawing lines, or maybe better said, copying the lines that our culture has drawn and reinforcing senses of enmity between us and people who have different ethnic or cultural backgrounds. There are a variety of ways that we might end up identifying somebody as an enemy. One person, one Christian author gives it in kind of a memorable little story. Miroslav Volf grew up in the war-torn country of Croatia and immigrated to the United States seeking refuge. And he recounts a story of a conversation with a Cuban-born woman who had left Cuba and immigrated to the United States seeking refuge from Fidel Castro's regime. And in that conversation, this Cuban-born woman asked the theologian, is it possible that Fidel Castro could come to believe in Jesus, maybe even on his deathbed and so end up in heaven? And the theologian thought for a moment and said, yes, it is possible. And she replied and said, if that is the case, then I would not want to be in heaven. It's a rather striking picture of what our hearts are saying when we copy worldly ways of creating enmity between ourselves and others. As Miroslav Volf, as somebody who grew up in a war-torn country and with, a, with war in his own background, he describes how he sympathizes with that woman's feeling of disdain toward that one person who had harmed her, who had done great evil to others as well. 
who her family had taught her to resent and who maybe rightly she viewed as an extremely unjust and at times even downright evil person. He can sympathize with that and yet he pauses and reflects, how should we as Christians... How should we as Christians relate to maybe even those who have hurt us? Those for whom we've developed over time? Or those who our whole family background has taught us to view as an enemy? It's an important question. As we think about the second great commandment, you should love your neighbor as yourself. If we're disciples of Jesus, we need to think about that not only in terms of how do we love people like us, but also in terms of how do we relate with people that we feel or we have been led to feel are something like our enemies. How do we relate not only to our brothers and sisters and people like us, But here's the question, how do we relate to our enemies? And going way beyond the Pharisees' distorted understanding of the direction of God's Word, yes, you've got to love your neighbors, but come on, you're free to hate your enemies. In contrast with that distorted understanding of the teaching of the Word of God, Jesus says boldly for all who will listen in His day, and He continues to say boldly in our us-against-them world today. But I say to you, love your enemies. What does loving your enemy look like? Let's consider a few of Jesus' descriptions here in this passage. Verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What does it look like to love enemies? Sometimes it simply looks like this. It looks like praying for people who persecute you. The early church took this stuff really seriously, by the way. The early church didn't think that Jesus was joking around when he suggested that our response to people who persecute us should not be to respond with the same kinds of bitter attitudes or the same kinds of hatred, but that our response should be to love and even to pray, even for those people who would seek to harm us for our faith in Christ. The early church took that really seriously. I wonder how seriously we take it. One example from the early church is found in Acts chapter 7. There's this guy named Stephen who is full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. An important servant in the early church in Jerusalem. And persecution comes. Real 
Intense persecution is escalating against those who are following Jesus. And eventually, Stephen is confronted by a group of Jewish leaders. And Stephen gives a beautiful and lengthy account of his faith as it is rooted in the redeeming work of God across the ages. You can go and read all of Acts chapter 7 later if you'd like. But at the very end of Stephen's speech, those who were accusing him were not persuaded to show him mercy. Rather, the religious leaders found even further reason to persecute him. And they began the process of killing him as a kind of heretic by throwing rocks at him. And as those rocks pelted his body, as real harm was done to his flesh and to his bones, as those rocks one at a time not only led to deeper and deeper pain, but led closer and closer to the moment of his death. Acts chapter 7 tells us that Stephen, it tells us how Stephen responded. He did not respond by throwing insults back at those religious leaders who were persecuting him. He did not respond by getting up and seeking to throw rocks back. Rather, Stephen responded by crying out to the Lord in prayer. Lord, do not count this against them. You see, the early church took Jesus' teachings very seriously. I wonder how seriously we take Jesus' teaching about this. When we as Christians feel like opposition to our faith is growing stronger in our workplace. Or if we as Christians feel like voices advocating for things other than Christianity are getting louder in our neighborhoods or on our Facebook feed. If we as Christians feel that advocates for things other than Christianity have more and more voice in public discourse, in politics and so forth. If we as Christians begin to feel that maybe there's even a sense of opposition or even persecution toward us, how do we respond to that? So many of us want to pick up the stones that were thrown and throw them right back. We want to engage in the same kinds of attacks that we've felt coming against us. And then there's the way of Jesus as it was practiced by Stephen and the early church. And I say to you, love your enemies And pray. Don't throw stones back. Don't throw blows back. Don't slam words right back in their face. Love your enemies and pray even for those 
who would persecute you. What does it look like to love your enemy? In part, it looks like prayer for people who persecute. I skipped something. Can I come back to it ever so briefly? This is cool. That whole thing with Stephen, by the way, stones falling, praying for them instead of throwing rocks back at them. You know who was standing there? Saul. The Lord used those prayers in ways that Stephen didn't see before he died. It reminds me of what we talked about last week with Martin Luther King Jr.'s words about nonviolence. Nonviolence doesn't work miracles overnight, he said with a kind of seasoned observation. But choosing to love our enemies, he observed, it first does something in us and it may eventually even change the heart of one's oppressor, he observed. And so as we think of Stephen choosing not to throw back rocks, but to pray for those who persecuted him, here's a cool picture of that in the transformation of Saul into Paul, who would end up taking the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the known world. All right, moving on. What does loving your enemy look like? First of all, it looks like prayer for people who persecute you. And then let's look at a second thing here in our passage Look with me, if you would, at verse 45. Actually, let's go back to 44. I say to you, love your your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. What does it look like to love your enemies? Sometimes it looks like generosity toward people that we think don't deserve it. You see how Jesus uses language here? He's talking about some people who are evil and some people who are relatively good. He's talking about some people who are relatively just and some people who are relatively unjust. And here's the thing, when it comes to loving enemies, we often come up with these excuses in our heads, and sometimes, Jesus knows us pretty well, right? Sometimes the excuse sounds a lot like this, but they don't deserve it. I know it's good for some people to get mercy, I know it's good for some people to be loved, but those people are evil. I know it's good for some people to receive generosity. I know it's good for some people for us to give gifts to some people. But those people are unjust. And how does Jesus deal with that objection to loving our enemies? He reminds us of the heart of our God himself. See, our God who is perfectly holy in ways that we're not, who is perfectly wise in ways that we're not, who is perfectly all-knowing about people's hearts in ways that we are not, has still deemed it right and fitting and good and just to provide rain for unjust people as well as just people. Our God who is 
perfectly holy in ways that we're not, who is perfectly wise in ways that we're not, who is perfectly all-knowing about other people's hearts in ways that, frankly, we are not. He has deemed it good and right and fitting to give, to provide for, to show evidences of His kindness in the lives of those who are bad and those who are good alike. And so, for us who are not perfectly holy and righteous in our judgments, who are not perfectly wise, who don't know the depths of other people's hearts anyway, you see what Jesus is saying, right? Who are we to think that our judgment is better than God's if we deem others unworthy of our love or when we deem others unworthy of our kindness and generosity toward them? What does loving your enemy look like? It looks like prayer for people who persecute you. Sometimes it looks like generosity for people who we think don't deserve it. I'm going to keep moving here so that we don't end up with an hour-long sermon, all right? That's stuff I want to get to. What else does loving our enemy look like? Let's keep reading, okay? Verse 46 For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles, all of if you will, from a Jewish perspective, all of the unclean nations of the earth, all of the unclean ethnicities of this planet, all of them out there, from a Jewish perspective, don't they all love their brothers as well? What does it look like to love our enemies? Sometimes it looks like hospitality toward those who are different. And I've chosen the word hospitality here on purpose. It's not a word that shows up in our passage, but I think it's a word that captures something that these verses are getting at. The word hospitality is an English translation of a New Testament word used elsewhere in the New Testament, philoxenia. Most of us are familiar with the New Testament word Philadelphia, the name of a city in Pennsylvania. And what does the name of that city mean? City of brotherly love. Philadelphia refers to loving your brothers. And it is not wrong, according to Scripture, to love your brothers. It's not wrong, according to Scripture, to love your family. But here's the thing. What Jesus is getting at and what the rest of the New Testament underscores in a variety of ways is that if all we do is love our brothers, if all we do is love our family, then our love is not yet full grown. There's more to grow into. There's more to be seen beyond Philadelphia, beyond brotherly love. There is also this other form of love, philoxenia. 
we translate it hospitality. But if Philadelphia is the love of brothers, Philoxenia is the love of strangers. It's the love of foreigners. You know that word that we have? Xenophobia. Xenophobia as we pronounce it. Same root in, same root in Greek. Philoxenia is love toward, love toward those we don't know. Love toward those who aren't like kin to us. Love toward those who are outsiders or strangers or foreigners. And what Jesus is pressing toward here in this part of the Sermon on the Mount is to say that if we take the command seriously to love your neighbor as yourself, then that command will be applied not only toward those who are like us but that in Philadelphia, but that command will also be applied toward those who are not like us, who are other, who are strangers to us, who otherwise we might view as foreigners or outsiders. What Jesus is getting at is that the right application of you should love your neighbor as yourself is fulfilled not only with Philadelphia, but also with Philoxenia. In fact, if all we do is love people who are like us, then we're just doing the same thing that this whole fallen world is doing. We're loving people who love us. We're loving people who are like us all the while filled with self-centered arrogance and looking down our noses in disdain toward others, toward them, toward the they, toward those who are different. And Jesus says, if you only greet those who are your brothers, how are you any different? Let me pause on this long enough to say, who are the others? Who are the others in your mind? Who are the others in your soul that you are less eager to greet, to welcome, to invite over, to love with hospitable philoxenia? Who are those others for you? And look, I'm just going to venture one little guess here, which isn't going to apply to everybody. But I'm going to venture to guess that for some of us, the others are people who are associated with other political tribes or other political ideologies. One of the most world-reflecting or worldly things we can do right now is to dive in all the way to swallow hook, line, and sinker the line-drawing, us-against-them kind of ideologies that are floating around in our American climate right now. And so for one person, it's like a no-brainer. They are the Dems, the Libs. We don't have meals with them. For others, they are the Republicans, the right-wingers, the Capitol-building stormers. We don't have meals with them. 
Now listen, this us against them kind of stuff can show up in a whole lot of ways. Not only in this one. But I wonder if in this moment that we're living in, in the 2020s right now, one of the most radically countercultural, one of the ways that we can live most radically counterculturally, one of the ways that we can be most clearly distinct as disciples of Jesus who are living differently than the world around us, is if we are people who are absolutely committed to loving even those that our neighbors expect to be our enemies. One of the ways that we can live countercultural lives that will actually catch the attention of our neighbors is if we aren't buying in to this habit of making an us against them thing where I'm awesome and they're horrible about everything. One of the most radically countercultural ways that we can live is, is, is if we begin to take this Philoxenia stuff seriously. And look at people who think differently than I think. People who act differently than I act. People who view the world differently than I view the world. Maybe people who dress differently than I dress. Or look different than I look. What if Jesus' disciples took this stuff seriously in America in the 2020s? I think we might be a pretty distinct people. And so Jesus' words are relevant for us today, even in these kinds of ways, but they boil down into the smallest corners of life as well, right? I mean, even as kids get together and hang out in the neighborhood, very quickly there becomes the cool kids and the other kids, right? And whether you're one of the cool or one of the other in your neighborhood... What if as kids, we're, what if as Christian parents, we're raising our kids with this mindset that says, even if others act as enemies, you know what you're called to do? You're called to love them and pray for them. What would that start to do to our kids' hearts? And what if that grew up into the ways that we relate to people who are different than us in our workplaces? people who have different bumper stickers or different yard signs than we'd have in our neighborhood. We said, I'm not just going to hate them, I'm going to love them, and I'm even going to start to pray for them by name. How might that start to change our own hearts? What if we were radically committed even toward those who are most opposed to our faith to saying, we're, committing to, we're committed to loving them, and we're committed to praying for them. What would that do to our hearts? And how might that begin to change even the world? Because we believe that prayer is more than just changing our hearts. We believe that God uses prayers to change the world. What if we took this stuff that Jesus is saying seriously? What does loving your enemy look like? It looks like prayer for people who persecute you. It looks like generosity for people who don't deserve it. It looks like hospitality toward those who are different. And then a fourth answer is needed. A fourth answer that we can't overlook. What does loving your enemy look like? A fourth answer is needed, which is different than the other answers. Loving your enemy 
looks like your Father in heaven. Look with me, if you would, at verse 48. Jesus says with bold clarity, you therefore, and that therefore ties into what he's been saying in this last little string of sentences here. This idea that all the nations of the world, they just click up with other people who like them. But I'm calling you to love people that would be defined as your enemies. You, therefore, he says, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Old Testament already gave us the language, you must be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. But Jesus chooses a different kind of language here. Not just speaking of holiness, but speaking of a certain kind of perfection related to love. When we hear perfection in our culture, we typically think of flawlessness, a perfect score on an exam. And that's involved in the idea of perfection that Jesus is using. I think it's more tied, however, in Jesus' language In the language of the book of Matthew, it's more tied to this idea of maturity, full grownness, having come to its full extent. Like when you're working on a recipe over time and you're like, I haven't perfected it yet. It doesn't mean that you're, you know, substituting the wrong ingredients and making mistakes. It just means there's something more for this recipe to to grow into in order to have the full array of deliciousness that I'm after in this recipe, right? And in the same way, Jesus is saying there's a fullness to God's recipe for love that I'm calling you into. It's not just that I'm saying stop making mistakes. He's calling us to full-grown Godly love. To full-grown love that reflects the way that God Himself has loved us. When we were His enemies. Whether you grew up in a kind of religious background, some of us grew up in kind of Christian homes or Jewish homes or Muslim homes, and so we have this kind of religious background. Or whether you grew up in a not-so-religious background, most of us don't instinctively, whether from the religious background or not-so-religious background, most of us don't instinctively think of ourselves as enemies of God. Most of us instinctively think of me and God, and we're like, cool. Now, God and them, lots of judgment, right? I want God to take care of the them. I want God to judge fill in the blank. But me and God, we're pretty cool, right? Most of us don't normally think of ourselves as enemies of God. But God's word, God's revelation speaks to us in stark terms about something that we typically know or feel in our own experience. That we are separated from God. And God's Word tells us that we are separated from Him not only because our imperfections kind of make it impossible for us, but because we have downright turned our backs and run away and set up camp and and dug in as enemies of God and His plans for our lives. 
We might not like to hear this, and I don't have time to go into it at length, but let me simply say, God's Word tells us that apart from, apart from His grace coming and getting us back, we have chosen to run away and dug in our heels, not in a good, loving, happy, warm relationship with God. We have run away and dug in our heels as enemies of God. And yet, what has God done about that? Jesus Christ introduces us to a Father who sends His Son to come and win us back. To come and bring us out of being enemies all the way into being part of the family as we were designed to be. Jesus hints at this idea by using the word Father over and over in this passage. There's a lot of words that the Bible uses, a lot of words that Jesus uses to describe God. He's our Creator. But Jesus doesn't simply talk about God as Creator providing for the just and the unjust. He doesn't simply call us to grow into this perfect, full-grown kind of love the way our Creator has a perfect, full-grown kind of love. Now listen, that would be true to talk about God as our Creator. That would be right. But it's not the language group that Jesus uses. Why not? Because Jesus is trying to plant seeds in our hearts of this beautiful hope that what He came to accomplish was not just to get people who are enemies of God to not be destroyed by God, but He came on His redemptive agenda so that enemies of God would not only not be destroyed by God in that warfare, but so that those enemies might be brought all the way into a, re- into a loving relationship with their Creator as their Father. A loving relationship with Him. With Him who made us. With Him who, when we rebelled against Him and ran away, did not count the story over, but sent His Son in love to give Himself for us to die on the cross for our sins and to rise again in new life and to bring us all the way into the family. Do you see, as we think about this story of God, uh, as we think about this story of love for enemies, the first way that we find ourselves as disciples of Jesus in this story of love for enemies is not as the good guys who are going around and doing a good job of loving all of the people who are acting like enemies. The first way that we find our place in this story is by admitting, I've been an enemy toward God. And when I was a rebellious enemy against Him, when I kept moving further and further away, when I insulted Him with my thoughts and with my words and with my actions, for reasons that I will never 
fully get to the bottom of except to say it was all because of His love. He chose not to treat me with the judgment that someone who acts like an enemy deserves. But He chose in love to bring me close into the family. As disciples of Jesus, that's the first way that we find ourselves in this story of love for enemies. Not as the good guys who have done the loving, but as the enemies whose lives have been melted and transformed and forever changed by redemptive love. And as people who were once enemies now brought near by love and grace and mercy. You remember what we talked about last week? Jesus found His disciples shaking in fear about going out into the world for fear of how they might be treated out there. And Jesus came and met them in their fears and He said, peace be with you. And He showed them the scars on His own hands. And then He said, as the Father has sent Me, So I am sending you. As people who were once enemies, now brought close to the heart of God by love and grace and mercy and kindness, we are called to go out into the world knowing full well that there will be people who will hurt us. And there will be people that we will be tempted to hold resentments against. And there will be people that our whole culture would say, you know you're supposed to treat them as enemies. And yet as people who were once enemies, whose lives are melted and transformed and forever changed by love, we're called to go and no longer just treat them, them as enemies. We're called to go and love. We're called to choose to show mercy and grace and generosity and kindness and patience and compassion. We're called to go out into the world representing the love for enemies that has melted and changed and transformed our lives with the prayer, with the hope that it will contribute in some small way to His wonderful plan to bring countless millions around the throne singing out, worthy is the Lamb who for enemies like us in love was slain. At this time, I'd like to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come. In just a moment, we're going to take the bread and the cup together. This is